This morning, we're beginning a new series titled Rooted, and our passage for this first week is Romans 8, 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Well, hey, good morning. Good to be with you this Memorial Day weekend. My name is Nate, pastor here. Um, It's just a privilege to be here with you. Uh, We just announced we're beginning a new series entitled Rooted, and for the next 11 weeks, we're going to be looking through the Apostles' Creed. And I want to do a few introductory remarks about the why of this series let me put it this way, every one of us this morning, no matter our religious background, is living by a creed. You see, a creed is simply this, it's a deeply held core conviction which directs and guides one's life. And everyone has one. Sometimes it's intuitive, sometimes it's explicit. You know, if you do a short drive around neighborhoods in Madison, you've seen creeds. You've seen the one that says, in this house we believe black lives matter, women's rights are human rights. No human is illegal, science is real, love is love, kindness is everything. That's a creed. The Apostles' Creed is a summary of the Christian faith. It's actually, historically, it wasn't created by a church council. A lot of creeds were, but the But the Apostles' Creed was a grassroots confession of faith. In fact, the earliest kind of um, solidifying of it we see is the early part of the second, or excuse me, third century. And it was used primarily in the baptism of new converts. New converts to Christianity would go into the water, and the person there would say, do you believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and then they would be immersed. And then the next stanza, and then the next stanza. And it was named not because it was written by the apostles, as it may sound, but because it was a summary, the essence of what the apostles taught. To be clear, the Apostles' Creed is not everything a Christian believes, but it is the fundamentals. And this is significant for our moment for a couple reasons. One is, we live in confusing times. Culturally, we are immersed in a moment where our culture says this, it doesn't matter what you believe, it just matters that you sincerely believe. In other words, just believe. Just believe in something. Our culture would say there is no absolute truth, which, by the way, in and of itself, is an absolute statement of truth, right? And one of the problems with our cultural moment and our understanding of belief, of sincerity versus objectivity, is that it actually doesn't work in everyday life. Let me give you an example. It's like an, an individual who goes up into the attic, and you've ever been in the attic before, they will tell you this, 
only step on the support beams. Do not step anywhere else. Anywhere else is not built to, to hold your weight. And I have people I know who have sincerely believed that something outside of the support beam can hold their weight, and then they have put their weight down, and what has happened? They have gone through the ceiling. It didn't matter how sincerely they believed. The question is, is what they believed able to hold the weight? And the Apostles' Creed is a short statement that unpacks the fundamentals of the Christian faith, the God of the gospel and the hope that is found. And this is the support beams. These are the things that are actually established that can hold the weight of your life. In short, we hope this series actually provides clarity in the midst of confusing times. But secondly, we also live in divisive times, right? So much of our world is divided. You know, every, one example, everything is politicized, is it not? And we can find ourselves in these days very isolated, sectioned off based on race or gender or political leaning. And yet, did you know this morning that globally speaking, Christianity is the most diverse religion on the planet? And the Apostles' Creed is actually the one that is the most universally accepted across the globe. In other words, this morning, there are Swedish Lutherans. There are Korean Presbyterians. There are African Pentecostals and Chinese house churches and Egyptian Copts. All that affirm this, this creed. All that say this is what we believe. In other words, our hope in this series in the midst of a divisive time would be this could be actually a time that could provide unity, no matter how you identify. That this is what we're rooted in. So let me say this. Whether this morning you're exploring the Christian faith, whether you're new to the Christian faith, or you've been a Christian for most of your life, our hope in this series is that you would be rooted, you'd be grounded and established in the fundamentals and grow from there. So, let me pray, and we'll step into the first stanza. Father, this morning, um, would you provide clarity? Would you help us to go in this series and help us to grow into maturity? Lord, in the midst of divisive times, would you provide unity? We ask you for your spirit to help and guide and lead us and teach us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the first stanza is this. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I've got a question for you. Who is God? Who is God? A.W. Tozer um, theologian said this, the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you, when you think about God. Think about that for a moment. Like it's not your bank account. It's not gas prices, right? It's, it's not your degree. 
It's not your relationship status. It's not how many followers you have on InstaFace, right? The most important thing about you and me is this question. How do you answer it? Who is God? And many people today believe in God. But the question is, who? Oftentimes, he's a distant deity that got things going, has kind of let things spin out of control. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's unable to do anything. Maybe he just doesn't really care. For some, God is unknowable. But the creed opens, and it says the first answer to who God is is this, that God is a father. And that, listen, that doesn't relate to nature or substance. In other words, it doesn't mean that God wears sandals with socks and on days off he sports a Packers shirt. That was a joke, please. Okay, you're with me. The, the title of father doesn't mean, it, it, it doesn't relate to what he does. It's not as if he's, you know, he's a t-ball team coach and therefore he's a father. That's, that's not what it says The title Father has everything to do with how we relate to God. Everything in terms of how we relate to God. It's the nature of our relationship to God. And so the creed opens, and here's here's the thesis. Here's what it's proposing, that you and I can know and relate to the God of Scripture as a Father. And there's two ways that this is taught in Scripture. The first is that he's the father of creation. And we see it in the creed. It says, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. You know, one author put it this way, that he is the one from whom all things come, the one who generates all things. So to begin with, it means, it's suggesting this, that you're not an accident, You're not merely lucky mud. You are created by a God who is a father. From the porcupine to the redwood trees, from the Andromeda galaxy, which is 2.5 million light years away, to a snail, to the prairies of the Midwest, to the Himalayas, to the diversity of humanity itself and all its complexity. That God is the author of this. It's his handiwork. And therefore, this teaches that he is a source of all, and therefore it means we are not, as one poet, William Henley put it, the master of our own fates and the captain of our own souls. We are dependent. We're not independent. We're, we're dependent. And because he's the creator, we actually owe him everything. We owe him everything. But there's a second piece to this that's remarkable. And this relates to Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Son. We'll we'll be focused on that next week in the second stanza. But what's unique is that Jesus arrives and he calls God Father. Luke's gospel, actually, in the life of Jesus, Jesus begins his life and ends his life addressing God as Father. As a 12-year-old boy, remember this, where he gets lost from his parents, they come back and they find him, and what does Jesus say? 
He says, did you not know, mom and dad, that I must be in my father's house? Then lastly, his last words on the cross are these, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And here's the, here's the deal. The, 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 the scriptures reveal that the essence of Christianity, of the creed, is that because Jesus calls God Father, we are invited to have a relationship with God where He is our Father. After Jesus was risen, in John's Gospel, John 20, Mary Madeline sees him, and, and it's a stunning realization. There's Jesus bodily risen, and Jesus says this, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. And we see it in our passage today, Romans 8. Look with me at verse 14. It says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You know, we, um, we walked through the book of Romans last year, and the, and the Cliff Notes version is something like this. We saw in the opening that everyone is lost in sin, whether you're religious or non-religious, whether you think you're good or you're bad. Everyone is lost. And at one point along the way in the the book of Romans, Paul says this, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. It's this sobering note of our degree of our lostness and our accountability to this God who's made us. And yet, in the middle of Romans, it says, in the midst of that condition, God sent Jesus out of love for us to die for our sins, rise from the dead, to give new life. And Paul is saying this, He's talking about those who have put their trust in Jesus in this letter. And he says, not only are you forgiven, not only are you forgiven, but you now have a new status as a son of God. You are empowered by the Spirit to live a new life, and you are now a son. You are in the family. Let's let's think about that a little bit. There are three privileges that this passage unfolds about being a son of God. And the first is just the joy and security of being a child of God. Look at verse 15. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I remember when I was 16 and I had my first kind of real job. I was a paper, you know, boy before that. That didn't really count. This was a real job. And um, we're going to a grocery store. And my manager, man, he just scared me. Like, I was so scared. Um, and I, I performed really well because I was so scared, you know? I just did not want to get on this wrong side. I saw other people get on the wrong side. I did not want any of that. And Paul, in, in, in essence, says there's a way of relating to God marked by a spirit of slavery. And Paul's just saying this refers to anxiety and fear of judgment before a holy God. And then some of us, we, we think God is like an ogre who is out to get us. And in some measure, he's, he's not to be trifled with. And outside of Christ, it's, it's right to fear God in judgment because we have fallen short. 
But Paul says there's a whole new status, a way of thinking and knowing God in which the spirit of adoption as sons. You know, in the Greek and Roman legal institution of the day, one could adopt a child, and when they did, it would convert all the rights and privileges that would ordinarily accrue to a natural child. And what Paul is saying is that this, it's in Christ a person is adopted in the family of God and given all the rights and privileges. There's no fear of judgment. It doesn't mean there's not discipline, but there's no fear of judgment because Christ has taken it. At the beginning of Romans 8, it says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no fear of judgment. It's done. It's paid for. A while ago, I was listening to a fellow pastor share the story of a couple in their congregation who had recently adopted. Um, and they'd been fostering this child for four and a half years. And then they got the paperwork. It was complete. And the father said to his now son, I like being your dad. And the child said, I have never heard that before. Do you realize that in the gospel, that is what God is to you? Do you realize in Christ, that is who he is? That he likes being your father, that he likes being your dad? There is a, a joy and a security. But secondly, there's this intimacy um, at the very end of verse 15, it says, By whom we cry, Abba, Father. You know, Abba means daddy. It's a very intimate word. It's a very intimate name. In Mark's gospel, Jesus says this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Jesus is facing his impending suffering. And what we see here in Romans 8 is that those who are his children are invited to call him daddy. Let's think about what this means a little bit because there's a section in J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, and, and he, he talks about how like in the Old Testament, right, there's, there's a sense in which that there's, this, there's this fear of the Lord, which is a good thing. A sense in which we're aware of our littleness and God's holiness. A sense in which we're aware of our need for mercy. But there's really a sense in which, like, don't get too close. And what happens in the New Testament as Jesus arrives, inaugurates, and, and, and moves his kingdom into this world, what happens on the other side of that is that all of a sudden there's this boldness and confidence with which we can approach him. Always being sure of his fatherly concerning care. When we moved here uh, in 2010, uh, I was working part-time at Starbucks on State Street, and our kids at the time were like five, three, and one. And sometimes Amanda would drive down with our kids and visit me at State Street Starbucks. And one time they came, and it was one of those things where you're down there, like there's, it, it, it's, it's in between classes, you know? Like it's, it's a zoo, and like the line is to the door. There wasn't the whole, this like whole order app ahead thing. Like people had to wait in line, remember those days? And, and all of a sudden, like, I'm at the register, the line's out to the door, and all of a sudden I hear 
for my three-year-old son. Dad! Over all, like, I mean, and everybody's just looking, like, who is this kid addressing? And they're all a bunch of college students, and, but I know, I know my son's voice. Right? And guess what? I didn't, like at that point, I forgot what even was happening. Like the order, I forget what you just said. Grande latte, I'll get it later. Because right, my, my laser-focused eyes were just like, I know my son. He has access to me. There's something like that, right? With having God as your father and being his child. But thirdly, there's a sense of which the child of God is this future hope. Look at verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. This passage closes, and it says this privilege of being a child of God extends not just in this age, but the age to come. That language of heir, it's talking about the, the privilege of adoption, the future hope, this, this new creation that's coming. No more sin, no more death. This is your inheritance. And yet, right, there's this reminder in this passage that this path to glory is still marked by suffering. You know, um, I think I get one Lord of the Rings reference per six months, so here's my one for the next six months. But there's, um, there's a one, there's, when you watch it, you realize that Frodo's life gets completely turned upside down. He loses his livelihood at the Shire. His friends end up at various points taking advantage of him or leaving him or turning on him. There are moments where he's about to lose his life. And all of this is because of a ring. And here's the reality. If you identify with Christ, if you're his child, then in some measure, based on your context and situation, in some measure, because of the nature of this world, you will experience something of that as well. And yet, even in the midst of that, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians that no eye has seen nor ear has heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, you can't even wrap your mind around it. You can't imagine it. Like, do you know what's coming? No, you don't. You think you do, but you don't. The creed opens with a statement, I believe, and invites us to root our lives, and relate to God as our Father. So let me just ask you this morning, if you're not a Christian, what if you could know and relate to God as your Father? What if that were true? You know, the essence of the Christian faith is this, is that no one earns a spot at that table. Like, there's no, none of this like, I'm good enough. It's not that. In fact, the condition at its core, I said earlier, is one of, really, it's, it's enmity to God. But that's the stark nature of the gospel, that God, in His grace and mercy and His love, comes after you in the person and work of Jesus, not only to forgive you, 
but to give you a seat at the table, to know him as Father. In John 1, it says this, For to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Let me just ask you this morning, if you're not a Christian, what, what is holding you back from that gift, if anything? Do you know it's simply faith? It's trust. That's how you enter in. It's reliance. If you're a Christian this morning, let me ask you again, who is your God? Uh, J.I. Packer writes this. He says this, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. You know, for some of you this morning, that's particularly challenging because you didn't maybe even have a dad growing up. Or maybe the one you had was a pretty poor example. But let me say this, even the best fathers, like my dad, great, great father, they are only a three-watt bulb, a three-watt bulb compared to the sun's radiance. Do you get that? And it means whether for good or ill, for an example we have, we should look to the scripture to see who God is toward us as a father. And Packer goes on to say this, he's the perfect parent, he's faithful in love, generous and thoughtful, interested, check this, in all we do, respecting our individuality, skillful in training us, wise in guidance, and always available. Perhaps some of you this morning, you're a Christian, but you've been going some other directions. You've been making different choices. You feel distant from Him. And maybe this morning you would wonder, you'd say, maybe, maybe He's just done with me, you know? Listen, um, as a parent, I can just tell you this. Um, when your kids are making choices that are not what you desire. Yeah, you're, you're frustrated. But let me tell you also, it actually moves your heart even more. Like you almost ignore your other kids that are doing fine. Do you know what I mean? Because <laughs> you are so in tune. You so want what is best for them. You know, is it any wonder, and this is for non-Christian and Christian as well, is it any wonder that Jesus, with the parable of the prodigal son, we likens who God is to a father who is looking for his son to return. And when he sees his son returning, doesn't care who's watching, but runs to meet him. Do you not see his heart? Let me put it this way. If it's true that God is your father, then what might it mean to live out as a child of God. Let me put it this way. Perhaps you work at a young company, software technology company, just a random one, right? 
and you are trying to figure out how to keep your head above water week in, week out. More things get piled on, and you are overwhelmed. Do you know that your identity is not in your performance? Do you know that your greatest identity is the fact that you're known and that you're his and that you're his child? And that actually living in that, although it doesn't change your circumstances, it changes how you approach them. Or how about this? Maybe you're just, you're, you're a young mom. You're trying to balance the chaos of kids in a house, trying to work things out. Oftentimes you feel a little bit like, like, I don't even know how I got through today, I didn't get anything done, and you are discouraged. Oh, do you not understand? You're a child of God. Do you understand the status that you have? Do you know his concern and his care for who you are and where you are? Or how about this? Maybe you're in middle school or high school, right? Like those really hard years where you're not really sure who you are yet. You look around at the relationships you have, and those are ever-shifting, right? And you're trying to figure it out. Do you know there's someone who knows you, who made you, who is for you, right there with you? If you're his, you're his child. Or how about this? Maybe this is a season for you of suffering. It comes in a variety of different ways. Do you know that your Father is sovereign over all that comes into your life. And because He sent His Son, you know it's not His displeasure that this is happening to you. It's not that He's out to get you. But actually somehow and in some way, this is how growth works in the Christian life. It's in those moments where He's actually training you. Romans 8 would later say that these are actually the moments where he's trying to make you like his son. That's how we learn. That's the training wheels. Let me encourage you this week with an exercise. Begin and end your day with the thought that John writes to a young church in his first epistle. He says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful uh, this morning that you know us, that you love us. The challenges we face, the concerns we face, they are not... You're not ignorant to them. Um, we are grateful this morning for the fact that we know that you're somehow, Zephaniah says, singing over us, not because of who we are, but because in light of what you've done through your son Jesus, because of whose we are. Father, just pray that you would root us in this reality and this truth that you are our Father. And with that 
change the very moments, the very situations that we are living in. And we ask all this in and through your son Jesus. Amen.